Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. If you've been tuning into this podcast for a while now, I hope you've been able to spot our underlying intention with every episode. Our goal isn't simply to help you become a more effective manager or leader. It's really a much deeper ambition than that. What we really want to do is to expose you to people and ideas that inherently challenge our common beliefs and practices and to enlighten and inspire you along the way. And with that purpose in mind, I'm pleased to welcome Stanford Business School professor Deborah Grunfeld. Her new book, Acting with Power, will be published in the next few days and offers a new and eye-opening paradigm that overturns everything we thought we knew about the nature of power. Shakespeare famously said, all the world's a stage and one man in his time plays many parts. And this idea has profoundly shaped Dr. Grunfeld's understanding of power. As you'll soon hear, she challenges us to realize that we play many roles in our lives and to acknowledge that our power comes from making informed choices about how we play each one. We often assume the power flows to those with the loudest voice or the most commanding presence in the room, but in fact, true power is often much quieter and more deferential than we realize. Moreover, it's not just how much power we have, but how we use it that determines truly how powerful we are. One thing to be sure is that this isn't going to be a discussion linked to a Machiavellian approach to power. Dr. Grunfeld's decades of research proves power is inevitably diminished when it's used as a tool for self-enhancement or a resource for personal consumption. Importantly, she's found that people are consistently rewarded with higher status, respect, and admiration when they intentionally use their power for the good of others. So how should we think about the roles we lead and how do we most effectively utilize the power we have to feel successful in each one of them? Well, you're about to find out. As additional background on Deb, she's a tenured social psychology professor. She co-directs the executive program for women leaders at Stanford. She also sits on the boards of the Lean In Foundation and Stanford Center for Advancement of Women's Leadership. And with that, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, Deb Grunfeld. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here with you. Well, it's an honor for me, and I want to get going right into your book. I use my weekends to read my books, and I typically just lie in the bed and devote an entire Sunday to reading my guest book. And at the very beginning of your book, I was sort of stunned by something that you said. And this was not the fact that you were given tenure at Stanford 20 years ago, but that when that happened to you, this magnificent accomplishment, you felt like you were an imposter. Yeah. And more specifically, you said that as your professional stature grew, that your authentic self couldn't keep up with your social reality, which is interesting language to me. And so, as I said, this not only was a very candid admission, but a surprising admission. I think our audience is probably going to be thinking, how's that possible? Somebody that accomplished with this remarkable you know, success in their life feeling like an imposter. And so, since I think many of us have probably felt this way, no matter what success we've had in our own life, I thought I would ask you to tell us why you think you had these feelings and more to the point, what was the process that you used to transcend them? Sure, sure. Happy to talk about it. It's interesting and I'm not surprised to hear you had that reaction. One of the things I find when I talk about these issues with pretty much every audience I encounter. I see gigantic rooms full of people nodding their heads. So I, I think it is a really common experience. I don't think I knew it at the time, but I do think it's really common and I understand it better now. So 
I mean, I think there are a couple of components. Some are are kind of widely known and some are, I think, less widely known. And those are the ones I am emphasizing in the book. So, I mean, one issue is that for people who are kind of driven and overachievers, part of the psychology that drives that behavior is this kind of deep sense that you're not quite good enough, that you're not enough. And that's something that develops very early in life. There are all kinds of reasons for it. But it is something that a lot of people carry around with them. And I think what happens when people who do find themselves having success and moving up in the world is that with every promotion or or recognition, we find ourselves in a new role. And I think in our culture, we don't take the idea of roles very seriously. You know, we're individualists. We're supposed to just be ourselves and walk around from one situation to another doing exactly the same thing because we're principled and we have values and we know who we are. But I think the reality is really quite different, which is that we all play roles in every aspect of our lives. And the roles that we play, like becoming a professor would be an example, or becoming a Stanford professor, those roles have a tremendous impact on how other people see us, but we don't experience that impact directly at all. The role is is kind of designed to create almost like a script that makes it easy for people to have interactions with one another. It's like you kind of have a sense for, in particular contexts, who should have the upper hand, who should be raising their hand to ask questions, who should be answering the questions. I mean, all these things that we take for granted don't happen naturally. They happen because we have ways of organizing our social interactions and roles are a big part of that. So one of the things people who write about imposter syndrome don't talk about that much is this real disconnect between as you move up in life, the way other people see us and the roles we play in other people's lives and the gap between that social reality and the reality about ourselves that we carry inside us, which, you know, for some people never really changes. You know, for, for many people who who are ambitious and, and interested in achievement, it's always driven by that niggling sense that you haven't quite done enough that you're not quite enough as you are. So I think that's where it comes from. You know, it's just a gap between the ways that we see ourselves starting in childhood and then these realities that define how other people see us and the roles that we play in their lives. So this is really interesting, and I hope you don't mind my wanting to dig into this just a little bit more. I mean, you began your book with it, so it's very much a part of who you are and yeah. part of your journey in life. And it's interesting because the people that I've had on the podcast are all extraordinary, high-achieving people. And I've sensed in several conversations, despite their remarkable accomplishments in many aspects of life, that the drive aligns to what you were talking about, which is, yeah. you know, these feelings that I'm not enough, I need to prove myself, I need to demonstrate that I'm more. So two questions that you sort of inspired in me. One is, you sort of implied that we don't experience the role. So you became a Stanford professor, other people see you in the role of Stanford professor, but you didn't necessarily experience the same. I'm wondering why. But I'm also wondering specifically how you healed it, because I think if you had a whole room of people, every time you've mentioned this to people nodding their head, you can do a lot of good here by saying, here's how you heal that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that my experience with that really was a turning point for me in my life and in large part a basis for the book. So yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, I think the disconnect in large part has to do with the fact that all social roles, I think, 
have hierarchical content, you know, like a parent-child relationship, a teacher-student relationship, a boss-subordinate relationship. The roles have hierarchical content because social hierarchies, as much as we don't like certain things about them, help us organize our lives and they help us cooperate with one another. So, so the fact that there's this hierarchical content, so when you're in like a high status role, like the professor or like the boss or the CEO or, you know, the interviewer, or whatever it is, there's a natural tendency among people who are trying to establish rapport and a cooperative relationship with you. There's a natural tendency for them to view you with respect and admiration. That's part of what comes with the role. And suddenly you're a big deal. It's like, I remember being shocked when I first started teaching that I would say something and people would write it down. Like that was just astounding to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, it just, Ten it's, commandments. It's, it's, a very, it's just bizarre until you realize, well, of course that's what they're going to do. Like you're playing the role of someone who has a lot of knowledge and expertise, and they're here to glean that. So I think it's owning specifically the status and the power that come with being in a high-ranking position that's so difficult when you feel about yourself that you're not really worthy of that type of respect and admiration. So that to me is kind of really what's at the crux of why it's hard to internalize. You know, when I started teaching, when I, you know, it was like literally one day I was a graduate student, the next day I was teaching MBA students and literally from one day to the next, I was a completely different person. It didn't feel different at all. And I knew what role I was in and I tried to follow the script. I showed up to class on time. I had a syllabus. I knew what I was going to be teaching and gave them information about my background. But the part that was harder was coming to terms with the reality that they expected and needed things from me that psychologically I wasn't prepared to provide, you know. So there are many responsibilities that come with having status and power. I mean, one of the most important ones, I think, is when you're in the high, higher ranking position, it's your responsibility to create a base of security for everyone else, to create a sense that in the context where you're in charge, nothing bad's going to happen to them. And in order to do that, you have to get comfortable with being the person who has the right and the responsibility to sanction certain types of behavior, you know what I mean? To regulate what's happening in the room, to shift the discussion, to call on some people and not others. Like these are all ways of using power that many people don't feel comfortable with and wouldn't feel uncomfortable doing. But once you realize that the role requires that, like to play the role effectively, you have to internalize those responsibilities that come with having status and power, which are given to you by other people. Well, it's interesting because what I think you're sort of hinting at, which is, let's just say somebody in our audience has just been promoted from a middle management position to a senior management position. The parallel here is that what they need to do is to reassess themselves and say, I'm not the same person anymore. I'm in a different role. And the expectations and the behaviors in this role are different than the ones before. Sometimes we just think it's a conveyor belt and we just keep behaving in a certain way and people are expecting us to behave in another way. And that's where the disconnect is. Is that your point? Oh, absolutely. And I think there are lots of examples I hear from executives all the time that, you know, there are people who are excellent subordinates. And part of that in certain contexts is being highly deferential and very good at taking direction from other people and executing on other people's plans. So you get promoted based on those qualities. But when you're the boss, those qualities aren't helpful to you anymore. 
right? When you're the boss, you're the person that has to give the direction to other people. And you're the person who has to push back and not be deferential, but rather be insistent on providing direction. So yeah, I mean, it happens all the time that people get promoted and stumble or disappoint themselves or need coaching or need training. It takes time often to to realize that the ways of showing up at work that have been successful for you and perhaps even been the reason for your promotion are not the same behaviors and sides of yourself that are going to be necessary to succeed in, in the next role. So yeah, that's exactly right. It's important to take time to reassess. And I would say even, you know, not just in terms of promotions, but even just going from one context to another. So think about a CEO who has to go from a meeting with her team to a meeting with her board. She's always in the role, but her power and status are not the same in both of those contexts. So the ways of showing up in those contexts probably need to be different as well. We're going to dig into that, I promise you, because that's a big part of the book here. I want to talk about something that you mentioned and maybe just give you the big picture here and let you just go with where you'd like to. Obviously, you had this experience where you took this class where you learned acting skills, yeah. right? And so I want to hear how that influenced you, but let me set it up this way. You intentionally named your book Acting with Power. Yeah. And I think the operant word here is acting. So tell us about your discovery that just as it is in the theater, that power comes from the roles that we play. Just as you you sort of did this beautiful introduction here where you said you have to behave in different ways. People that are working for you, direct reports expect a certain behavior from you. People on the board are expecting a very different behavior from you. And you've got to be able to rise to the occasion and perform in those different roles. So tell us about that. Yeah, and that's it. And what I think is so interesting about acting as a metaphor and a technique for making these kinds of transitions is that, you know, people worry a lot about the idea of like being inauthentic, like you know, going from one situation to another and trying to be someone you're not. And I think when you dig into what actors do, like professional actors do, what the technique is, it's not that you're trying to be someone you're not. It's that you're digging deeper into yourself to find parts of yourself that you're not utilizing. And when an actor is faking it, everybody knows that there's no personal relationship between the actor and the character. And the same thing is true in professional life, it's like people who don't walk their talk. I think the interesting thing about acting is that the whole process of it is learning to recognize that you're bringing out different sides of yourself all the time anyway, and you can be more purposeful about that in order to be responsible and do your job effectively. So yeah, I'll just say a little bit about this workshop. It was just the most incredible experience. So I have no background in the theater. I'm kind of introverted. I would never want to be on stage to act. It's like my worst nightmare. And at some point after I got to Stanford, the administration was experimenting with different ways of trying to improve the level of teaching kind of across the board in the school. And they brought in a consultant one year who had a background in the theater. I think she had worked as an actor, maybe a director. She also had an MBA. And she was traveling on the world, helping teachers to get better at playing the role of a professor, which when I was asked to take this workshop along with my colleagues, we were a little bit skeptical about that because I think, it's like I said before, in our culture, nobody likes to think of themselves as playing at anything, right? We like to think that we're just... It is what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, mm -hmm. and, I mean, the whole this whole like standard of authenticity is one that's yep. very, very important in, in individuals' culture. And we can talk more about that later. I think it's super interesting and a little bit misunderstood. 
So yeah, I went into this workshop with her. There were maybe eight of us there for two days. She had us get up and give like two minutes of a typical lecture to one another. And then after two minutes, she would ask those of us in the audience to describe the characters that we saw the person bringing with them into the role. So an example would be, I remember there was a colleague of mine who was pacing, which a lot of us do when we teach. And some would say, I get, you know, there's a caged tiger. You, you have that. <laughs> but there's like this energy that's just barely under control. There was someone who surprised us by being very comedic in his lecture. And I don't think most of us saw that side of him very often. So it's like, oh, there's a stand-up comic in there. There was someone who was a, a relatively young faculty member who's always super friendly and deferential to me who became like the sheriff in his classroom and a little bit scary. And hmm. so as you started to unpack it, you realize that all the faculty were making choices about which sides of themselves to bring into that role, like what their personal artistic interpretation of being a professor was. That's sort of the artistry of it. And nobody was faking anything. They were just looking for characters in them who could rise to the occasion. So we, we had this first day, we kind of looked at one another and talked a little bit about the characters that we saw. And then this consultant asked us to go home and prepare to come back the next day, a little bit more committed to some aspect, to one of the characters that had been identified by the audience. And I really don't know whether I was successful or not. I didn't feel successful, but obviously I, I couldn't see myself. But I was actually really, really blown away by how much more successful my colleagues were when they went over the top and really committed to bringing that side out. There was someone who had been, you know, had said, oh, I see like a village elder in you. And he came in and spoke in a much more folksy way with less technical jargon. There was like a, the guy who played the sheriff came in wearing cowboy boots and kind of like really played up the whole idea <laughs> that he was, you know, like, like a gunslinger, like actually was using his fingers as guns, as I remember it. And what was amazing about it was how riveting those performances were, how much on the edge of your seat you were, how much you were rooting for the success of the person on the stage and how relaxing it was to see that you knew exactly who they were and it kind of allowed you to just relax into it and play your part as well. You know, when you see people who are a little bit unsure of themselves in those situations, it tends to make everybody really anxious and you you kind of feel for them and their anxiety and it's distracting. But it had this very profound effect, I thought, on how compelling they were. I was surprised at how much more effective I thought all of those performances were. And as I thought about it, you know, someone who's been interested in power and studying power for a long time and, and has always wanted to have a way of helping my students get comfortable with their own authority, I thought, you know, there's something really, really important here. So I decided to take acting classes after that. Were these roles sustainable? So, I, yeah. you know what I mean? Because they're overplaying their hand a little bit. Yeah. So are they just, are they leveraging their strengths in this scenario? In other words, if you were to go back to these professors in their classroom today, would the gunslinger still be the gunslinger? Sure. You know, I think that's a great question. I, I should ask them. I don't actually know. What I can tell you for myself is that I don't even know if I would know how to name characters that I'm bringing with me. But what I would say is that when I give myself time before teaching to do that work of like internalizing the reality of who I am to the people who are coming into the classroom or what they're hoping for, of what they've spent money for, when I give myself an opportunity to think about what I'm doing in that way, 
I feel much more grounded and much more powerful and much more connected to them than on the days when I'm like rushing into class and I haven't done that work ahead of time. Because sometimes I can catch myself and make an adjustment. So it does take a little bit of, of work and concentration because, you know, like I described earlier, it's not like the characters that I would bring with me in an MBA classroom or an executive education classroom or a talk in some company. It's not like those characters are top of mind all the time. I'm not always playing that part. Well, let me ask you, tie this down for our audience, which are leaders. How do we take this insight that you've had and developed and cultivated and massaged and really refined in terms of your understanding? Boil it down for here's what you need to be thinking as you lead people, lead organizations and the different roles that you have. Sure, absolutely. I have an example that I hope is generalizable that is something I've relied on a lot myself because, again, for me, there are infinite characters. You can play characters all different kinds of ways. I think what we all need to remember when we're going into a leadership situation where we're going into a situation where we want to have impact and need to use power well is that the goal is to establish trust. And in order to establish trust, there are two things that we need to do. We need to show up in a way that exhibits competence, like capability in terms of playing the role, getting the job done, knowing what we're doing. But the other aspect of it has to do with showing that we're capable of putting other people's interests first. So there's kind of a competence side to the trust piece and there's like a warmth side to it. And in part, what's really necessary in terms of power, again, also is exhibiting that you are capable of being tough and using force if necessary in order to protect the integrity of the group or the context or the meeting, whatever it is. So so let me give this example. Maybe this will help. So after I did the teaching workshop, I asked this consultant if I could do a personal coaching session with her. And I said, you know, I'm not really sure that I'm that good at using my authority in the classroom. And, you know, can you help me with that? And what she said to me was, she kind of just sat across me and she looked at me and she said, so a good character for you is the queen. She said, the queen rides around the countryside, you know, blessing all the community members, you know, waving her hand and making people feel safe and making them feel seen and letting them know that they're safe under her watch. She said, but a queen also carries a sword and usually it's hidden. It's like right under the cape. You don't always see, you know, it's not always visible. And when someone violates the rules of her kingdom, the sword comes out, she cuts off their head, she puts the sword back in, and she keeps on going. A little harsh. (laughs) Yeah, this was very powerful for me as someone who was uncomfortable with the idea of having the right to assert control in situations when it's going to be uncomfortable for other people, which is that with power and authority... These are not things you need to show all the time. In fact, it's probably better if you don't show them all the time. It's better to lead with respect and showing that you care and being friendly and letting people know that you have their interests at heart. That's very important for someone in power. But people need to know that you're willing to use a sword in order to protect them. 
that's part of what makes them feel safe. So what would be a scenario in a classroom? Somebody yeah. coming in late, somebody yeah. interrupting you? I mean, what would, yes. where would the sword come out? Yeah, or, you know, taking a conversation too far off topic mm-hmm. or taking too much time. There are people who just, you know, love to talk and they're mm-hmm. they're taking more than their share of time. Yeah. I think there are ex- interesting examples of this that I've seen in the, in the professional world as well, where I've heard, for example, that some... I think this example comes from a, a case from a while ago where Charlotte Beers, who is an advertising industry executive, came in and took over one of the big advertising agencies. I think it was Ogilvy and Mather. And she came in at a time when things were not going so well there. And someone advised her to conduct a public hanging. What that meant was that she was to, shortly after her arrival, identify a visible person who was not living the values of the organization that she wanted to promote and to fire them unceremoniously in a, in a public way. And so I think this is the kind of thing that people understand at some level that people need to trust that you are willing to make tough calls and put yourself at risk by doing aggressive things. Just because that fits the role? I mean, the public hanging sounds a little extreme to me. It sounds like they literally did use the sword you know, to lop somebody. Right. Is, is that the appropriate way to get everybody to align to the culture? Well, so here's another example of it. And again, the key to understanding and using this is to recognizing that doing these things because you think it makes you look more powerful is aggressive and potentially abusive and not effective. It's being willing to do these things when it helps advance the rest of the group that it's helpful. Did that work, by the way? I'm just curious. Did that backfire on her or was that effective? She was very successful, but she did a lot of other things afterward. And I think what she balanced, which is I think what I'm trying to advocate in the book, is that you have to be effective with power. You have to be comfortable using dominance when necessary and also being deferential and showing respect when necessary, always keeping what's best for the group in mind. That it's not about you and how you show up and whether you look powerful or not. It really has to do with knowing that the group is counting on you to help them succeed by either providing direction, using authority in negative ways, or by taking actions to allow power to flow up in the organization. It's just part of what makes people feel comfortable. With all the experience that you have with, you know, you're teaching MBAs to go out and lead in the world. Yes. I'm kind of thinking more in terms of the executive development programs that you do. You're seeing people in mid-career. Yeah. I'm wondering whether it's king or queen, do you see the benevolent king or queen more in the leaders that you see, or do you see more of the kings using the sword? That's a great question. The successful ones are able to use both. It's a complicated question because people are very bad at judging their own actions. So what I would say is that most of the people I encounter aspire to be the benevolent queen. That's the person everybody wants to be. And what gets in the way, I think is too much concern with either showing weakness or taking the risks of being strong. You know, it's like something else I said in the book is about the idea of getting comfortable with both how much power you have and how powerless you are. I mean, both our strengths and weaknesses are important. I think that leaders who are comfortable using strength and showing vulnerability are the ones that are most successful. But the real key is that You get in trouble when you try to do these things as a way of enhancing your own position, like holding on to power, for example, or making sure that you don't appear weak because you don't like 
the implications or, you know what I mean? It's like when Mm -hmm. your personal insecurities drive your actions, none of these things are helpful. But when people are willing to use a sword in order to protect the group, that just increases the extent to which the group trusts that the leader has their interests at heart. So let me go into that a little bit with you. You know, what's clear from the book is that researching power is your life's work. You've been doing it for decades. And you came to this conclusion that our success and impact and satisfaction in life are not the result of how much power we accumulate or even how powerful other people think we are, right? Status. It's the result of what we're able to do for others with the power that we already have. So I want to know how you landed there. And then I kind of think I cut you off from telling another story. Maybe it had to do with this idea of demonstrating power to the benefit of the team or the people that you're leading that I really want to dig into. Sure. So just to follow up on that last conversation we were having, because I think it's another good example of the idea of using a sword, which I understand is provocative Mm -hmm. and and we don't want it to be misunderstood. So let let me give another example that I think is helpful. Another example I know of, um, you know, a manager in a large corporation who who has been very successful, moved up very quickly, and is viewed as a very positive influence in his organization is there is an incident that was described by one of his team members that when he got promoted quickly into a, a manager's position, he was relatively young. A lot of the people that he was supervised were much more senior to him. And at one of his first meetings, someone showed up late and he'd already started talking. So he stopped talking. He asked the person who came in late to meet him outside the room. And he told him it wasn't acceptable to show up late. You either come on time or you're not allowed to be here. And he sent him away. And he came back into the room and continued the meeting. So, you know, it sets a norm that's good for the group, which is that if people are coming in here when they feel like it, it's going to be hard for us to stay focused and get things done. And you have to treat the meetings as though they're important. You have to be here on time. I'm not going to tolerate it. It creates a sense of security. And it's a relief, I think, for people who make the effort to show up on time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. That mm-hmm. you know that that behavior is not going to be tolerated. And there are many, many managers who really struggle. It's a problem in so many organizations I see. Rewarding good behavior is one thing. Punishing bad behavior is very hard for people to do. But this, I think, is a great example of how he didn't make a big deal of it. It wasn't like a big blow up. It wasn't nobody even had to see what happened. But nobody forgot that. You know what I mean? Yeah, because what you're really saying is that you set a standard. You say these are the expectations and this is what excellent behavior looks like. And then you have one person who deviates from that. And if you don't demonstrate to that person that that's outside of the expectations and hold them accountable or her accountable for it, then it sends the message that the standards that you've set are arbitrary and you're not going to hold people fully accountable to them. And that's that's when things unwind, right? That's right. And it's an abdication of the power and authority that come with being the person in charge. Is it a lack of courage? What is it? To some extent, sure. To some extent. I mean, I think that's a whole nother topic. Also, such an interesting one. Sometimes when these things happen, you know, it's hard to have the wherewithal to even recognize that it's happening that needs to be dealt with. You know, he was already into his content message and he had to actually have the wherewithal to say, oops, like that person just came in late and I'm not going to keep going. So part of it, I think, is just, you know, recognizing it in a timely way. But yeah, absolutely. It feels very risky personally to use dominance and aggression or force or punishment. You just don't know what's going to happen. So if you try to use force as the person in charge, you don't actually know what's going to happen. If you're not 100% assured of being successful, and if you're not successful, that's 
a real challenge to the legitimacy of your position. Just to pin this down, when you use the word force, are you really just saying direct communication, clear, concise, and with the sense that you're clarifying what the expectations are and holding people accountable? Is that really what you mean by force? I mean, kind of. So uh, let me just say a little bit about that, because I think this is super interesting. In my field, where that language is coming from is my knowledge of the fact, actually, that people can make choices and they do make choices all the time about whether or not to use dominance or submissiveness in their interactions with other people. Animals do this the same way. It's a way that we negotiate hierarchy. So dominance is basically all the things that we do and say, the nonverbal indicators, the direct communication, the holding eye contact a little bit longer than normal, you know, using your body to insist in a situation like the one I just described, that the person actually leaves the room with you. Like all of those things are ways of using power to direct other people's behavior. And I think the reason that dominance has the effects that it has is that it's indicating a willingness to escalate and not back off. Does that make sense? So so Mm -hmm. it's, you know, yes, direct communication, but even more than that, it would be direct communication with direct eye contact held a little bit longer than normal. Or it might involve having a conversation where you're standing closer to someone than you normally would, or you're asking them to sit down before you talk to them. It's doing things that indicate that you're not backing off is basically what it is. And in the animal kingdom and in the human world, the way we negotiate power and status in large part has to do with using dominance and submissiveness and signaling that we intend to win an argument, that we intend to have our way, that we're not going to back off versus signaling, you know what, I'm not going to resist, right? That I'm willing to go along with you. That would be sort of the opposite. So really what I'm talking about more is exhibiting the intention to fight for what you want. So transition that now into the question that I was asking a minute ago about using power that we already have for the greater good. Whether we're using the sword or not using the sword, we're using our power. And why do you so strongly believe that power needs to be used for greater good? Because I'm going to ask you a question in a minute and tell a scenario with one of your former colleagues that sort of hints that the moment any of us get any power, we abuse it. So Mm -hmm. how do we use it for good? Yeah. So it's a really interesting question, obviously a very important question. And I think that the most important thing is to make every effort we can to stay focused on solving problems outside of ourselves. The research on power suggests if you look at individuals who are motivated by power and then look at their career trajectories over the lifespan, there are really two paths that you see. There are people who tend to rise very quickly in organizations and also find their way into careers, like the professor's an example, where the roles and jobs have naturally very large status and power differences. What you find is that for people who have a very strong power motive that's not balanced by other motivations like mastery of skills, doing better, and also most specifically the idea of being interested in solving other problems, of thinking about the success of future generations, of making sure that you're developing the people who work for you, not just advancing your own career. Those motivations that are focused outside of ourselves 
when combined with a power motive, predict a long, successful career in a position of power. It's that combination of using power in a way that's responsible, that exhibits concern for dependents and beneficiaries and people who are less powerful than you are. The contrast case would be when people are interested in power because they don't feel that they're good enough and they're constantly working just to accumulate more power and status for themselves, they often have a very quick rise and then their careers are more characterized by all kinds of scandals. So those kinds of people tend to exhibit like a lack of impulse control. So, you know, their careers are derailed by addictions and marital infidelities and sexual misconduct and, you know, all the kinds of things that we see in the news every day. So for me, you know, what's very obvious to me is that it's just a question of really changing how people think about what power is and what it's for. And that's why it's so important for me to have people recognize that when you have power, you're playing a role, you're playing a part in someone else's story, and you've been given rights and privileges in the hope that you'll use them to benefit other people. That's the contract with social power. It's not just like the more power you get, the more power you get. It doesn't matter how you use it. Those kinds of things do happen sometimes, but they don't usually last that long. It's the ability to get people focused on the idea that their positions come with responsibility for other people that predicts using power better. And it's interesting too. So there's a lot of research on this. We find, for example, that if you look at the U.S. president's careers over time as a function of birth order, so a president's birth order in their family, and you find this in other populations too, being the firstborn is associated with using power more responsibly than having no siblings or being the baby of the family. And the explanation for this, the rationale, is that when you are the firstborn, you learn at a very early age that there are people in your family whose needs are more important than yours are. Mm. So to the extent that people get either in their socialization or just learn how to shift their mindset that having power comes with responsibility. It comes with responsibility for taking care of other people and that you can be successful by doing those things also. I think these are things that everybody needs to understand more. They are associated with more success in the long run as well. I'm happy to hear it. So Deb, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from our conversation and we ask all of our guests a series of quick answer questions with really the intention of just learning a little bit more about them personally, you know, their interests, influences, life philosophy, and we call it the heartbeat round. And so now it's your turn. And when you hear each question, please give me your best instinctive answer and respond to each one in a heartbeat. Are you up for this? Yes. All right, good. What's your personal superpower? Self-reliance. What's one additional superpower you really wish you had? Self-satisfaction. Someone, alive or not, whose use of power you really admire? Um, Barack Obama. One thing male leaders tend to do effectively with their use of power? They are comfortable with hierarchy and take hierarchy seriously. And what's one thing women leaders tend to do very effectively with their use of power? Women tend to be more responsible than men with power. One book you wish everyone in the world would read? The Evolution of Cooperation by Robert Axelrod. Never heard of it. That sounds wonderful. That was a good one. A prediction about the future you're pretty sure is going to come true. Uh, coronavirus is coming. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Cooking. 
your synonym for the word heart? Commitment. The trait that destroys the most leadership careers? Insecurity. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? The New Yorker. And something ranking very high on your bucket list? To sing in a choir again. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you said you weren't a dramatist, but now you are, right? I like to sing. And I like the group aspect of it. I'm more the backup singer type than the, than the soloist. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so very much. This was fun. I got some really great answers here. So let me transition. Let's go back to our conversation here. And thank you for these. Sure. A couple of years ago, I worked with UC Berkeley psychology professor, Dr. Keltner, on an article. And I know he's your former colleague. I didn't know that until I read your book. So this was an article about power. And I'll just get to the head of the class, which is that the minute we get power, most of us abuse Mm -hmm. it. That's what his research showed. So I really want to dig into this with you. Let me set this up for the audience. He did this experiment that I think you may have even done with him called the Cookie Monster Experiment. And let me just set the stage for everybody listening in. So here's how he did it. Three people are brought into a room and they're told that they're going to work together to complete a small project. So these people don't know each other. They're just randomly assigned to one room, three people working together. And as part of the researcher's instructions, and before he you know, walks out, he goes, uh, you, you're in charge. So he randomly picks a participant and tells them that they're basically the manager, even though they're doing a very basic kind of exercise that doesn't need a supervisor. And then he leaves the room and lets them work on some simple task for 20 minutes and then comes back into the room with a tray of four cookies. So each participant is handed one of these cookies And then after each person of the three has a cookie in their hand, he asks, who gets the fourth cookie? And what he found was repeatedly that the person who was arbitrarily given the responsibility of being the manager or in power said, that cookie is for me. So the whole inclination is that the minute we get power, whether we realize it or want to own it in ourselves, that we have a strong inclination to abuse it. Yeah. And so I really wanted to hear your thoughts on this and particularly in the context of everything we've been talking about. Totally. Yes. So first of all, I I just want to say I absolutely love that experiment. I was not involved in running it. I wish I could take credit for that. It's such a great demonstration, but no, it's a fantastic experiment. And my favorite part of it that you didn't mention is that not only did the high power participants take the extra cooking more often, but they also got more crumbs on their face and on the table. I don't know if you knew that. So, yeah, so yeah. just they ate with greater abandon as well. Yeah. So very, very interesting. And I actually think the implications of that study are are a little bit more nuanced than, you know, the most obvious takeaway. What Dacker was interested in was looking at the impact of having power on norms and etiquette in society. And he and I wrote a paper together with Cameron Anderson at Berkeley, who's another person you should definitely talk to, that uh, developed a theory around the effects of power on people who possess it. And the way we described you know, that study and then the many, many other studies that have been done since was in terms of something slightly different, which is that what I think we can say with pretty good certainty at this point is that when you put people in a situation in the lab where they have more power than other people around them, or they're even thinking about having power, what you find is that they become more action-oriented and more focused on their own goals. So those are two things that I think are pretty clear now as a result of the many, many experiments that were done after the cookie study. 
But what I take away from this, and there are studies that show this, is that when power disinhibits behavior in that way, like it leads people to not try to control their impulses, whether it's abusive or not, whether it's corruption or not, depends on whose needs are top of mind when the opportunity to use power arises. So in that cookie experiment, for whatever reason, what was on the power holders' minds was they wanted another cookie and they weren't concerned about whether they were leaving others high and dry and they weren't concerned about whether they looked like a slob while they were eating it. I mean, all these things were factoring in. They just wanted more and they took another one. But what more recent studies have shown is that there are circumstances in which having power makes people more pro-social. It just depends on what their goals are. So an example would be there was a study that was done by another Berkeley psychologist, Serena Chen, who looked at the difference between individuals who have communal values, like they have a tendency to put group interests ahead of their own personal interests versus those that have more kind of transactional values. So they tend to think of making exchanges and trying to get as much for themselves as they possibly can. So it's basically the difference between whether you define your self-interest as you having more than others versus defining your self-interest as you and others having more. She found that when people have communal values and you give them power in the lab, they're actually more generous and more hardworking than those without power. So they act more on those communal values than people with less power. I think in her study, the outcome measure was that she had participants, you know, in a condition where they had power or where they didn't, she had them allocate a series of really boring experimental tasks that had to be done. And they were allowed to choose, am I going to do these tasks or is this person who has less power than me going to do these tasks? And what she found was that the more transactional people delegated all the boring tasks to someone else and they did nothing, the more communal people took the majority of the tasks themselves. So the way to understand it is that power disinhibits action in service of the goals that are top of mind when the opportunity to use your power arises. And so for me, what that suggests is that we just need to work harder at having people think differently about what they're supposed to be doing when they're in positions of power, whose interests they're supposed to be thinking about. You've landed where I wanted you to land, which is Great. to say, how do you how do you motivate us all? How you know, what's the instruction on how we lean into being, you know, this communal thinker as opposed to the transactional leader? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of ways in. I think one of the things that I think is most important in terms of changing people's mindset is that when most people think about power, they worry about the power they don't have. They feel they're not in control. They're not respected. They're not admired. They haven't proved themselves. And they feel like they need to get more power to prove their self-worth and have more control over their outcomes. And what I ask executives to, to start with and often in the sessions I teach is to just consider the possibility for a moment that they already have more power than they think they do. Why is that? Is it just a construct or is it true? Because we, especially when we're in positions of power, we underestimate how willing people are to comply with our wishes and to take for granted that our position is legitimate. We underestimate the credit people give us when we're in these roles. So there are studies that show, for example, that if you ask people to rank themselves in a group that they work in, in terms of status, the most common error is that people tend to underestimate where they rank. Hmm. So what that suggests, and it goes back to that idea of like, we all feel a little less important than we are. 
to other people. So if you start with the idea that, you know what, actually, if you look at the glass half full, if you think to yourself, I'm actually very important to all of these people, right? All these people who work for me, what I think of them is very, very important. The way that I treat them is very, very important. If you start from the point of view that you probably have more power than you think, it puts you in a much more generous frame of mind and in a much more caring and considerate frame of mind, right? If you're the person who is in the position of power, you can afford to be generous. You don't have to protect yourself. You don't have to fight for more. You don't have to demonstrate over and over again how powerful you are by putting other people down. You can show other people respect and let them know that you care about them. You can take their knowledge and interests and experiences seriously and to heart because it's not a threat to your position. I think it changes everything almost instantly to recognize that we're more important to other people than we think we are. I love that. And I love the idea that by having more power than we think we have, that it's sort of a catalyst for being more generous with it. And that's a mindset shift that I think is a great takeaway from your book. Speaking of your book, the very ending of it was rather powerful for me, at least. And so before you go, I have one final question related to that. And I want to read how you ended your book, because it really punctuates the exact point that we've just landed on here, but in a really articulate and kind of stunning way for me. So let me just read this. It says, To use power well, we need to own all of what makes us human, our weaknesses as well as our strengths. When we assume others are out to get us, that no one can be trusted, and that we are alone in the world, we use power defensively to protect ourselves. When we act out of fear, we create the world we're afraid of. When we act out of hope, assuming others are fundamentally good and caring, we use power generously. We put others first and create a foundation of trust that makes it rational for others to do the same. To me, this is what power looks like. So if you can possibly add to this, tell us how you know this and why this is truly our best mindset in our roles as managers, leaders, and really as human beings. Yeah. It's hard to be good to other people if we are judgmental about ourselves. So I think that that's part of it. And I also think that, you know, one of the most critical things is getting people to shift from a mindset of fear of exposing themselves to the desire to take care of other people. It's just a a slight change. So I talk to executives all the time who are terrified of showing weakness. They're afraid they're going to be viewed as weak. They're afraid they're going to be viewed as illegitimate and that people aren't going to trust them or accept their power. And when we're afraid of being perceived as weak, we overpower people. You know, it's like too much dominance, too much aggression, too much like reminding people over and over again, like I don't tolerate things and I'm tough and I can have my way. We throw our weight around. It's not a recipe for success. And it's also, I don't think even for people who do those things, it's it's not really the person that they want to be. So one issue is, you know, being afraid of your weakness. The other is that there are people, and and I think that I probably fall in this category of who are afraid of, of their strength, like actually afraid of alienating people by, you know, having standards, you know, by being successful, by being competent, by asking hard questions, by using the swords. And then what ends up happening there is I often, I feel like will abdicate my authority because I'm afraid of literally like blowing people away by being too much, you know? So 
I think when we try to conceal parts of ourselves, we're not full-blown three-dimensional people. We're just using the same hammer on every nail, trying to prevent ourselves from being exposed. And once we've accepted that we are both strong and weak, it makes it much easier to, I think, connect with other people and to bring out whatever sides we need in order to help create context where other people can feel safe and thrive and be more accepting of themselves as well. And this is something that's come up many, many times, and particularly lately, is this idea of accepting oneself. Yeah. I think you have Kristen Neff, who's at your own organization at Stanford, who's, you know, sort of influencing us to sort of, you know, love ourselves and yeah. accept who we are. And I think that's a very powerful and necessary action for anybody in leadership. Because if you don't feel self-assured, if you don't feel secure in yourself in all aspects, that you don't really have the ability to do exactly what you just described here in the last hour, which is to understand that you have more power than you realize that the role itself hands you an enormous amount of power and that using it for good, using it for the well-being and growth and success of other people is only going to elevate and maximize your own success. That's a hard leap for some people. And I think that's a great conclusion of this. And so I want to say thank you. And I think this is one of the most unusual, but also uncommonly insightful conversations I've had. So thank you so very much, Deb. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate your interest. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. Okay. It's been great talking with you. Okay. Bye-bye. Before we head out, I want to once again thank each of you for helping to introduce us to all the people in your life. It's indeed sobering to think that we, after 43 episodes, already have an audience in 136 countries and in every continent except the Arctic's. This growth and exposure could not have happened without you recommending us to others. And for that, I am profoundly grateful. And if by chance you're a new listener to the show, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for joining us. And I hope you don't mind my ringing the plug bell. My book, Lead from the Heart, is being taught now in nine American universities, and I invite you to take a peek at it. You can easily find it on Amazon.com or wherever fine books are sold. And besides hosting this podcast, I'm also a professional speaker and consultant who would love to help you and your organization, whether to speak at an event or help you evolve your culture and leadership practices. And I've also just launched an all new website and you can reach me there at markccrowley.com. As always, I wanna thank my wonderful team, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, Josh Richards, Marjana Novkovic, and the guy who turns straw into the gold. I say it every time, but it's absolutely true. My producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.